0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced, fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com/party and get your first case of 8 beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com/party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Ruth Smith, the new Chief Executive of Index on Censorship, an organisation which champions free speech. So what an amazing time for her to be taking on that role and what an amazing time for me to be interviewing her. Um, because we're obviously having a national, an international discussion about the right to speak up, about the right to have your voice heard against regressive and repressive forces. But also about the limits of free speech on the other side of the debate. What should... Uh, people be allowed to say and what shouldn't they be allowed to say should they be allowed to say anything so we explore uh, those principles with Ruth we also talk about her four years as a Labour MP in Stoke-on-Trent North uh, a distressing time in many ways uh, as a Jewish woman to be uh, a Labour MP under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and we go into that in quite some detail some elements of that are genuinely shocking Um, but also about representing a place like Stoke-on-Trent when you think about all the debates we're having about Brexit, uh, even before Brexit, the de-industrialisation of the UK, and now whether Keir Starmer's leadership can win back those people that culturally feel so distant from the Labour Party in places like that. So there's loads of stuff in this. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I began by asking Ruth what precisely the Index on Censorship does.
2: Thank you for having me. Index on Censorship is an amazing organisation with an incredible heritage, and that's why it appeals to me. Next year, it's our 50th anniversary, but we, were, or we start the 50th anniversary, but it was set up as a platform for Soviet dissidents to be able to tell their stories from what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. So to provide a voice for those people that couldn't have a voice at home, to provide some hope there for me, and yeah, you'd appreciate for me, that's the really important bit. It's the hope aspect of all of this, that you're empowering people when other people are trying to put them down. It's really, really exciting. So it's the what I think a lot of people would consider the traditional fight about free speech, you know, where there are people who are having their voices taken away from them. And we see that in so many different kinds of places now. And you know, we've seen it in the UK and we're seeing threats to journalistic freedom across the world. But this was originally set up as for writers and scholars as a place that they could be heard and that other people could celebrate them. I mean, like WH Alden was one of the original signatories. It's, you know, there were really extraordinary people. So it's a genuinely exciting thing. It's a huge honour and only a little bit, you know, terrifying to be put in charge of an organisation with such a heritage, but I've got an amazing board. Um, I can't tell you how scary it is to be interviewed by Trevor Phillips and Kate Mortby at the same time and know that Aronovich is also on the board and you're sort of sitting there going this isn't normal like this is genuinely not normal job interview but um yeah it's genuinely exciting there's a great team and uh there's a load of work to do
1: funny how life turns out your trevor phillips is the chair and he is the former head of what is now known as the equality and human rights commission he's just been expelled from the labor party you were labor mp suffered abuse as a result of your your jewish identity and the Labour Party is now being investigated by the EHRC that we expect to report soon. I mean, it's, it, is there a link? Is, is there a kind of serendipitous element to this that you've been through a period where perhaps you were under attack for your identity, that perhaps speaking out was a brave thing to do and, and, and you were attacked for it? Was this... I suppose in a way what I'm trying to ask is without the experience that you had in the last five years, that awful experience... Would you have been as likely to end up in a place like this?
2: No, I don't think I would. I mean, I think on the, fir- on the, on the one hand, yeah, you just know that every conspiracy, new conspiracy theorists have emerged over the last couple of days about um, how I got the job and why I've got the job and uh, what does this mean for the EHRC and yeah, the evil Zionist taking over the world. <laughs> um, and to be clear, so- that's not true. It really isn't true. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it really isn't true. It's never been true. that these people live in their own little worlds and they can continue to. Um, but, yeah, I think every experience that you have, every job you have, every, you know, every life experience you have takes you on a journey even if you don't even realise it. And um, the experiences of the last five years made me a different person. It made me genuinely cherish the free press, because that meant there was a platform to counter the conspiracy. It made me understand even more than I did before. And I used to run Hope Not Hate, even more about the role of education and how important it is in terms of dialogue. And confirm my fears about how polarised as a society we're becoming. And now I'm in a place where not only, you know, I've been on the wrong side of it. Someone said to me, but, you know, you've had too much free speech. It's like there is an element of truth to that. But um, I understand how important it can be. and also how people's actions and especially online are bullying out some other voices and how we need to empower those people to make sure they know they can be heard I, you know my thing all the way through my experiences in the Labour Party was that I was really worried that it would mean that because of what I was happening to me other pe- other young women would never have applied or wouldn't join the Labour Party wouldn't stand for public office because it would be scary and so and it's one of the reasons why I stayed and fought back so hard. And that's the same for this. I want to make sure that people have a voice and that they know how to use it and they have a platform to use it. And with, you know, we're seeing it with Black Lives Matter. Making sure that actually young people of colour have an opportunity to use their voice and that they are listened to and valued. is so incredibly important. And we need to make sure that that is strengthened and that that's the good thing that's taken from the experiences that everyone's having this year.
1: In five years at Hope Not Hate between 2010 and 2015, at the, you know, that is the pre-Corbyn, but yeah. a, an incremental move to the left under Ed Miliband, the pre-Corbyn era. At that point, is it fair to say, I mean, I remember when I worked for the Labour Party and, and you know, you occasionally do things at a local level with, with Hope Not Hate, it was predominantly a, about defeating the BNP. and obviously. Yeah. Having been an MP in Stoke, uh, you, you'll know about that. But is it fair to say that at your time at Hope Not Hate, the workload was predominantly about countering far right and probably Islamic fundamentalism, anti-Semitism? Is it fair to say probably wasn't a huge amount of the caseload?
2: No, I mean I always I mean well. The first time you and I met actually was on a door in Stoke on Trent. I, abso- so, I remember
1: uh, it. I wasn't <laughs> sure if you'd remembered it.
2: I did. You were with Mark, so That's yeah, right. we were yeah. together um, and and campaigning against the BNP. Um, so, you know, fighting the BMP and fighting fascists—that has always been what I wanted to do. I, that, you, their anti-Semitism, their racism, was built in. Um, the extreme um, Islamists who don't, you know, who are the other side of that coin—that was also built in. They didn't like Jews either. So, yeah, you know, it was sort of, but so it was just sort of normal. And you know where you're coming from. I think that's why the Anti-Semitism Labour Party shook me so much. Mm-hmm. is that was meant to be my family, my side, my team. Um, and I completely knocked me for six in a way that, you know, I saw day-to-day racism from and um, the far right. I expected it. You saw stuff online, you know, what Hizbeth Tafri or others would say. You sort of thought, well, that's their worldview. It is completely disgusting, but that is worldview. When you saw it from our side, like where the hell did that come from? Um, but it wasn't, I mean, it had started a little bit, to be, um, but it was really. I mean, Sajid talks talked originally about you know uh, dinner party Islamophobia. Yeah, the and that's what. Yeah, there was like a little bit of dinner party anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So like, I would um, someone attacked me. Uh, that I'd agreed with Peter Mandelson about something in two thousand nine at a Labour Party thing, and he said, "Well, of course you do because he's one of you." I was like, remind well, me mean, what? Member of the Labour Party? I mean, it, but they just assumed he was Jewish because of his name. And it's like, are you kidding me?
0: Oh, man.
2: And so, it, so there were bits of it that were just... And there was some comment about Jewish money and stuff. But it was sort of on the periphery, a level of racism that everyone who is not a straight white bloke... Of completely British origin would experience in a different way and then suddenly there was a flood it went from like oh my god you're a, you're vile to oh my god what is this um, very very quickly and that's what worried me it was how quickly we went from a Labour Party of Tony Blair and Jeremy Corbyn who were very who were completely anti-racist and very supportive to um, people crying at Labour Party meetings and feeling threatened and running away
1: so, we you say you the late part of Tony Blair and Jeremy Corbyn. Do you mean um, going from Tony Blair to Jeremy Corbyn was the, was was the sort of cultural shift?
2: Well, if, well, if you think about, I sat at um, I, I sat at an event where Tony Blair was speaking, and it was two thousand and eighteen, nineteen. I think it was like oh my god, twelve years ago he was prime minister, and he was the leader of the Labour Party. And if one person had said anything anti-Semitic, they have been thrown out of the Labour Party. This wouldn't have been a thing. And only eight years ago, Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. And Gordon Brown was very, very supportive of the Jewish community and brought in funding for Holocaust education and trips to Auschwitz. And now I'm sitting in a room and a Holocaust survivor is asking me why I'm still a member of the Labour Party.
1: A Holocaust survivor or a Holocaust denier?
2: harlequin survivor asked me why i was still a member of the labor party
1: oh right because they were disgusted that you were still there
2: yeah and you sort of go have i gone from how's my party that i've been brought up in gone from that to this like it was devastating and heartbreaking but it what scared me and it's why this hot, you know never forget ever vigilant always standing against racism because our own party went from very, very good relationships with the Labour Party with uh, the Jewish community to appalling relationships the Party, uh, with the Labour with Jewish community in you know, less than six years.
1: It's it was an incredible decline. I mean, you were you were you had a front row seat um, being a member of Parliament uh, during that period. Is it? I mean, I know what my personal views are, but I didn't go through the experience that you went through does the election of jeremy corbyn as labour leader is that the single biggest change that fuels that problem yes and, and 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 in terms of you know the amount that was around before his leadership compared to the amount that then followed can you give us an idea of the of the, the scale and the pace of that change
2: oh so it's really easy to forget the chronology of everything that happened because it happened There was a new story every week there was a new horrible um there was something always and from the moment jeremy ran for election through the prism of israel palestine there were concerns if you um for certain people about who he who had been friends with i mean at that point it was always about why did he kept sharing a platform with people that say that israel doesn't have the right to exist and that jews Because for those people, they can't differentiate between British Jews and Israeli Jews. Like there is a, we are one people, one everything And you know, the bit I find really offensive is that if I was in Israel, I'd be campaigning against Netanyahu every day too. I'm disgusted about annexation. The idea that he reflects my politics is abhorrent. All my family over there are members of Meretz. Like... It's just nonsense. I'd swear if we weren't you. know.
1: But oh, you can swear. This is a, <laughs> this is an unregulated um, <laughs> personal mother, podcast. Yeah, but my mother out.
2: tell me off. Um, <laughs> but, but we um, so, but we went from that October November in twenty fifteen. There were suddenly cases of anti semitism at the Oxford Labour Club, the Oxford University Labour. Yes, Club. Yes, I remember that. And there were students who were con- who were scared and thought that they couldn't go to meetings and they thought they were being harassed for being Jewish at oxford university in 20 you know 2015 that was just what is this so then we ended up with the royal report and kid and and young people giving testimony about their experiences and a lot of the people around them had been very involved in jeremy's campaign and then in momentum so it was a very hostile thing. That then quickly became the Chakrabashi Report, which, you know, I had, helped, I, you know I, I had wanted to... I think the thing that got missed for all of this is for Luciana, for Louise, for Margaret and I, we did not want antisemitism to become a thing. Like, desperately did not want this to become the issue. It yeah. ultimately became, because every time there's a story on the front page of National Newspaper about antisemitism, someone got, gets hit, someone gets hurt, It has actual physical consequences on the Jewish community in the UK. And who wants to hear about their own identity every day? Yes. I wasn't a Jewish MP. I was an MP who happened to be Jewish. When my mum moved to Stoke-on-Trent, I think we trebled the Jewish community in my constituency. Like I, you know, this was not a normal part of my being.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so we, um, uh, so we were desperate but Lucianne and I had proper engagement with the Chakrabarti report because we wanted it to go away oh did it not go away so um from the launch of the report and the um, controversy around Chakrabarti's appointments and the lords and then to the front bench the events at the launch and then you know that was my from the 30th of June 2016 onwards that was my uh, the beginning and very much not the end of me facing a huge amount of uh, racism.
1: Oh, there's so many. Just in terms of the stats, you got something like twenty five thousand pieces of abuse within a couple of months.
2: I mean within that's... a couple yeah it was actually that weekend.
0: Jeez. So I
2: thought and and the problem with I mean there are personal things that you know are ridiculous. I can't wear my Apple, I I haven't worn my Apple iWatch since that day because my Twitter notifications used to come through on my phone, on on my wrist. And so seeing all the abuse that I was getting on my wrist, I haven't been able to put the thing back on.
0: Oh, man.
2: Because it's just in my head, it's now associated with that. I got a load of good, I got a lot of support, but I got so much abuse that it took a while for people to go through and find the abuse, the threat, because there's always the threat, but it was overwhelming. And because I had burst into tears and walked out of an event, and I didn't cry on camera, for the record, but um, it was just an extraordinary, extraordinary thing, and it nearly broke my relationship with the Labour party.
1: You went through an awful experience, and, and others did as well, And what what really shocked me was this was all being done in the open. The video footage of you walking out of the event in in front of the media, in front of colleagues, in front of the then leader of the Labour Party. And apart from your allies and the media who reported it, senior people in the Labour Party didn't really seem to respond to it. It was almost like it wasn't happening. They kind of pretended that you hadn't walked out of the room. Jeremy Corbyn's on stage and doesn't say, Ruth, are you okay? Did he? I mean, no. like, plain devil's advocate, that might be tricky, things happen fast, he doesn't know what's going on. In the aftermath of that, did he get in touch at all and see if you were okay?
2: Jeremy did not get in contact there. I, I heard from his office four hours later when a journalist had asked me if anyone from the leader's office had been in contact, and um, that's when I got my first contact. The first time Jeremy um, tried to speak to me about this was on his way to give evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee. On anti-Semitism, so that he could tell them that he had.
1: So, firstly, the call that you get from the leader's office. Then, who rang you, and, and what was the nature of that call?
2: One of his staff. To make, I mean, in, um, the general secretary of the Labour Party had contacted me. Jenny it was Formby. No, it was Ian McNichol. It was Okay,
1: crikey, eight. God, how quickly but, things moved.
2: Yeah, so Ian contacted me immediately to say to make sure I was okay, but then also to say that he was that he was initiating the disciplinary process on um on the man that I don't really want to talk about but um yeah and then um they were like yeah we're just ringing to say basically it was a we're ringing so we can say we've contacted you kind of call
0: yeah
2: um and at that point I didn't do any media because there was no media to be done I issued a statement I was feeling really fragile because it had been such a horrendous genuinely horrendous experience and one of the um what was lovely is that because uh, it didn't happen in Parliament, so I had to get back to Parliament. And uh, Vernon Coco was waiting for me in my office with cake and coffee to make sure I was all right. And my team were there, and everybody, you know, it was oh, all but, like Vernon had arrived to feed oh, me man. to make sure <laughs> I was all right. Um, but and yeah, my friends always was there, you know, my friends arrived in this sort of protective shield. Um, but I had to go back to Stoke. By, that was one of the last times I ever travelled by myself again. I had to go back to Stoke that night, and my face was—you know—at Euston Station. There used to be that big
1: oh, the Sky like, News thing.
2: The Sky News thing, <gasps> and that was me. And it was like I have to get on the train by myself, and I'm trying to hide. And oh. that, it was yeah, you know, on every emotional part of that thing, it was. And and I'd love to say it got better, but from that moment on. My life got more and more difficult around this issue. Like, genuinely got more and more difficult. And I never had wanted, you know, I wanted to be the MP for Stoke and Trent North. I wanted to fight for my constituents. And this then just dominated. It took me a while to figure out how I could still do my job and do it. Because it just dominated everything.
1: You know, it's something... I kind of knew, but, you know, it, it, only hearing you say it does the impact of it. I remember, obviously, his meeting when the Mark you talked about earlier was Mark Meredith, the elected mayor of Stoke-on-Trent. It was a really good progressive, you know, pro- progress wing of the party guy. Um not necessarily the easiest position to hold in a place like Stoke-on-Trent, but I remember meeting you and you were, you were an impressive, ambitious person. It was like, wow, this person's going to be an MP. And it was really, you know, I always thought it was really exciting when you're working in politics to meet the people who are up and coming and you were just so impressive. Mad to think on that day. And I remember us walking down the street talking to each other. It's incredible to think that, you know, if you'd have said then, I don't know how many years ago that was now, probably 10 years ago, maybe more, 12. In 12 or 13 years' time, we're going to be talking to each other on a podcast about how you were basically racially abused and that this would have become the dominant narrative of at least five years of the Labour Party. I just wouldn't have been. I just can't. I, I, I still almost can't believe it now. I only believe it because it genuinely happened and yeah. obviously we've seen all the evidence. But what a, what a miserable way for it all to have turned out in a way. What, what an awful point, you know, to think of that walking those streets with so much hope about the Labour Party at that point for it to have ended up like this.
2: I still had moments where I think I went to sleep after polling day in 2015 and have not yet to wake up. <laughs> like in Sort of right? ashes to like, ashes, parallel yeah. universe. Yeah, I mean, no one would... You couldn't possibly have thought this is where we're going to end up. And especially from your and my perspective, who had the benefit of seeing the Labour Party actually be impressive and in government and do proper crisis management neither of us would ever have thought that you would have allowed this kind of political story to have continued for that long. You would have yeah. just shut it down. I mean, and there was such goodwill at the beginning, even um, And because of the subject nature, the subject matter, you know, I resigned along, um, I was Vernon's, um, Vernon Ian Murray's PPS on when, every, when everyone resigned um, after Brexit and after Joe had been murdered. And I, didn't, I was the only one not to publish my um, resignation letter because I put in it about how poorly Jeremy was dealing with anti-Semitism. And I knew that as a Jewish woman, if, I had, if that was in the public domain, that was a story. That was at the beginning of that week. The end of that week was the Chakrabarti launch. So, yeah, that lasted a long time. So
1: you, that day when you're at Houston, you see yourself on that huge screen. I can't imagine what that feels like when you're already feeling kind of vulnerable. See, it was one of the last times you ever traveled alone so for, for years yeah. after that what you always made sure you're traveling with a friend or did you have to have actual security
2: so i always made sure i was traveling with a friend for the first couple of years i rarely so either i'd get the train with one of the mp's from manchester because then i'd get off um or um um or one of my team would travel back and forth with me so it became a Thing and then because this didn't go away in twenty eighteen on police advice, I wasn't allowed to travel by myself, and I wasn't allowed on public transport anymore. And that continued until um, March this year.
1: I mean, that is just. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that Secretary of State for Northern Ireland used to need. Yeah. In case you are going to get really killed by the IRA.
2: Yeah. Well, for Lucy and Lucy and I, because of our security, and it was Lucy. you know Louise had horrible abuse. Margaret had horrible abuse. But it was the younger women. That they thought that, but um, from a security point of view, that we were at our most vulnerable. I mean, I've still got police protection stuff now.
1: And I mean, this is just what really. I think what's the most frustrating thing is there are still people out there who are still slightly sceptical about how real it was. Yeah, uh, the, the, the the amount of cynicism about it has it, it, been a real eye opener, just in terms of. <laughs> How many people aren't prepared to accept real evidence that is in front of their faces that they can disregard because effectively they've been over politicized by their loyalty to a particular wing or to a particular individual? It is striking as well that it was, as you say, all against women.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: I think I know the answer, but I think it's important to have the conversation.
0: Why? What,
1: what was it about Jew- Jewish women in particular that made you such a target?
2: I think they thought that they could bully us and that we would be silenced. And yet, that you can tell that those are people who had not followed Margaret Hodge's political career or Louise yes. Elwood and had never met me or Luciana because those are four women that you would never, ever try to silence. I mean, can you imagine what it was like when we were all together? Never mind you know, how the outside world would have engaged with that. But, um, so I think they just saw... Um, Younger women in mine and Luciana' case, case, and in a parliamentary con- context, we were still young. Like, I mean, it's the one benefit of working in parliament. The average <laughs> age is fifty. I, yeah, I was very young. Um, and you and yeah, they thought they could silence us, and they thought they could make us so incredibly miserable that we would step away, or that we'd be so scared. I mean, someone and you sort of end up going, "Why?" I sort of had this theory. They've always been the Green Letter Brigade. You know, it was the Green Ink Brigade. Politicians 30 years ago, 20 years ago, would have got letters in Green Ink from people who had very strange views and they would be threatening or they'd be whatever. But you had to buy the paper and buy the Green Ink and the stamp and then go and post the letter and it was like you had to put effort and work in. you don't need to do that with social media now you're having a bad day you can just run at whoever you want to run and you don't realize you know there aren't necessarily consequences and i never got i mean luciana and i dealt with it very differently and, and louise and margaret too i didn't want to see most of it so i am um, at various points some of my friends Changed my Twitter password. My staff were in charge of everything. I never got to see okay. the abuse because and, until it became a threat and it was going to the police. So there was sort of that that moment. But it did make you think. Right? Like, if I talked about holiday hunger, which was one of my big campaigns, I would get attacked for anti-Semitism. I get atta- I get racial abuse. and It's like literally talking about kids starving. If I talked about defence because I was on the defence select committee, and I you know that was. I was chair on the Armed Forces Covenant and I was talking about veterans or I was talking about buying a new platform. It would be, yeah, but you, you, know, you want to make sure he's around buying it. You know, like, I could, it didn't matter what I was talking about, it would immediately come back to my disgust with Jeremy and how he was dealing with it or my race or, yeah, my CIA Mossad connections. If only they knew I can't walk down the street without falling over. Um, <laughs> you know, so all of this just became like a... I'm a bit worried this is now becoming counselling for me, but, yeah, it became a whole, um, it became a nonsense, and it meant that I just stopped engaging on social media and then realised that that wasn't helping either because that doesn't, you know, that means that I had been bullied out.
1: Yeah, I mean, what a tragedy that you're, you know, the the job is to be a representative of the people, and you're having to restrict your access to the people because the, the tone of a really vocal but high in number minority are... i'll I'll, I'll treat you like dirt
2: i had to have police at every surgery which meant that we couldn't have i mean a bit i am i love people which is why i wanted to be an mp and and my surgeries i mean i represented one of the most deprived areas in the country um my constituents needed me and i hated the fact that um we couldn't advertise my surgeries that um uh, you rang. You know, people knew what day they were on, but unless you were coming and we had your name and address, you didn't, it was an appointment-based surgery, and that the police would be there. I hated the fact that if I went to a community event and I, you know, I, I live in I'm in the middle of my old constituency right now. I would go to community events every weekend, but we would tweet or put on Facebook immediately after I'd left, urging everybody to go there. You know, whereas most MPs would go and I'm going to be at the uh, summer fête at so and so. Everyone should come and join us. It'll be a great party. I couldn't do that I'd have to do it I've just left It's brilliant everyone should go which meant I had to go at the beginning of events or I had to go at the end of the event and I had to yeah so it was it changed the way in which I could be an MP and I really I can't tell you how much I resented it
1: but did it also change the way that you felt about the world not just about in terms of your own personal security but you're a member of parliament you are an impressive member of the community you're there, you know, you're the person, if you turn up to an event, you're the person who can find the words, the person that everyone in the room is going to want to talk to, either to chew your ear off or to, you know, slap you on the back or whatever it is, you know. It comes with a certain level of status that you have to learn to handle as a Member of Parliament. But at the same time, you're you're being so victimised that I I don't know how anyone could go through that experience and not then start to feel vulnerable.
0: So that must be such a
1: bizarre feeling.
2: I just, I'd have a, honestly, I'd have a wobble about once a year where I'd, you know, which isn't unreasonable given the threats that were coming. Um, And that would be like a 12-hour, oh my God, what am I doing? Um, But the rest of the time, you know, and you've been exposed to politicians all of your, you know, most of your life, it's an all-encompassing job. So there was just something, you know, you just kept powering through it. Like there was just a... There was never time to stop and think and go this isn't normal i just kept going and then you just keep going and then there'd be something rosie cooper um the national action trial so you know, i was giving evidence um because i am um, it would been hope not Hay that had exposed national action and then um, i'd been involved in that and then i realized that national action could try um, might get my home address and i had that moment of that so was on the far right not on the far left and i had that moment of that's actually genuinely terrifying and burst into tears behind the chamber because it was, you know, not that I am soft, but in a, actually I might be vulnerable for the first time. I've given myself time to realise I might be vulnerable. And then Liz Kendall arrived and it's like, oh, that's right then. Like there are other
0: people, (laughs) it's going to be all right. (laughs)
2: It's like, okay, I'm all right now. But because there are just moments of, every so often there was a moment when Luciana left and I realised that The mantle had passed me when Louise Ellman left. There were just moments of this horrible story where um, I felt vulnerable, but I felt either politically vulnerable or personally vulnerable, but you just kept going.
1: And were you tempted to leave with them? No. Not at all? No. Wow. My Uh, word. That is, uh, I, I thought at least a part of you might have thought, just, you know, you want the pain to end
2: my mum was desperate for me not to stand for election again, which I mean, I, the damage it was doing to my family, just because of how scared they were my friends and family watching this because they did have time to think about it. Yeah. Um, but I was so adamant that I've been, you know, I worked for hope, not hate. I ran the Jewish communities campaign against the far right. I went on my first demo against the national front when I was a teenager. My history teacher took me when I was like 13. I'd been involved in these battles the battle against racism was now inside the Labour Party, a party that my grandmother had campaigned for in um, 1926. Like this was not a party that I was giving over to racists. So they wanted me, they were going to have to throw me out. And, um, and yeah, I was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> I might at some point, but, um, I wasn't prepared. This is, you know, I campaigned. I don't know to the Labour Party for the first time in the 92 general election. I was 12. I campaigned. My mum was a trade union official. My mum is, is a matriarch. She's an amazing woman. She's my heroine. But she's also a senior trade union official. So I had to negotiate once a year my, um, uh, my pay rise, as in for my pocket money. <laughs> um, I had to do a written pay claim for my pocket money because my mother made me. And included in that was delivering her Labour Party leaflets from the age of eight. Like, this was... my The Labour Party was my identity, and these people who arrived, like, an hour before were trying to tell me I shouldn't be in it. Bring it on. <laughs> it
1: so, I mean, I don't want to overdwell on this. It'd be nice to talk about your new role, but um, just on the Chakrabarti report, I mean, it felt, it felt from the outside that that report was never going to reach the conclusions it, it had to reach. At any point, even at any level of engagement with it, did you was there any ever hope that you had that actually this could be the report that would sort this problem out?
2: Oh, it's always the hope that kills you, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, desperately wanted it to be truly, just desperately wanted that to be the line in the sand and that they were going to come good and that. The, at that point, Shami Chakrabarti w- had was not a member of the House of Lords and she had been beyond reproach on issues that I would have been on the other side of her on. But when she was at liberty, she was, you know, this, she was meant to be, or her reputation was, that she was a proper grown-up. Yeah. And so there was hope that she would deliver something that could make this all go away. And then it arrived and it didn't. But even what was in it wasn't implemented, not fully. And the Labour Party proved it wasn't fit for purpose. I mean, it took... um, The Mark Wadsworth hearing wasn't until um, April uh, 2018. That was nearly two years after where... And that's not just unfair for me because that was living over... But that was completely unfair to him, regardless of what I think of him. That that was that that was not just Ken Livingstone and that process that went on and on and on. That just meant that it never went away. Um, Jackie Walker and you know all of this. This is and actually Ken Livingstone like, in
1: the end chose to resign because the process was taking so long.
2: Yeah, and it was like because that would help Jeremy, and that just became such a perverse world that we ended up living in. It made no sense whatsoever. Um. And for no real purpose. And it were, you know, there were so, so many horrendous parts of it. But, the, I mean, there's the fact, and it's been used a lot recently by some of the very unpleasant people, but when, all my, when a big group of my colleagues walked me to the hearing, it's because the Labour Party had told me I was responsible for my own security and they weren't my prepared God. to protect me. Knowing I'd have to walk past a demo to get into the building. And it was like, are you seriously you're kidding me they, and then they said go and contact jewish security they wanted me to go to cst for cst to secure me to get in and out of giving evidence or i could go through the back door it's like i've been the target of racism you want me to go through the back door that's not a thing i'm a member of parliament that
1: is astounding
2: so it wasn't because you know i was doing a political stunt it's because genuinely the party had put me in a position where they were prepared for me to be vulnerable
1: I mean, that is such a hard... You know, when I think about the party that I worked for, I can't ever imagine it getting to that state under any of the previous leaders. No. Or previous general secretaries.
2: It would never... I can't... I just can't see... I just... That was sort of that moment of... I am on my own in the Labour Party. And I wasn't because I had all my allies and I had friends and I, you know, but I felt very disconnected from the Labour
1: Party. I mean, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report uh, is apparently imminent. Um, and Keir Starmer seems to have got off um, a quite positive note with, with Jewish community leaders um, from c- across the spectrum. I mean, with the EHRC, firstly, going into that election where, you're standing for re-election in 2019 and the Labour Manifesto is pledged to make the EHRC truly independent, to quote it. That seemed like a really odd tack to kind of try and publicly, and and since in in interviews recently, try and suggest that actually the Equalities and Human Rights Commission is somehow in hock to the state or or to, to certain interest
2: groups. I just, you know, there are some people that just can't stop digging like seriously just stop talking why are you obsessed with this issue you got us into a place that created this misery everybody else wants this misery to go away stop talking there is also it has been written now it is an um by an entity that when we're in government we established so let them do what they've got to do you are no longer responsible for delivering it the labour party needs fixed so that we can get on and fix the country Right fundamentally that is where we are Um, I think people need to be really you know everyone everyone needs to be prepared for what the HRC is going to say it's not going to say we're institutional racist because that was not the remit of the investigation to determine it was to determine whether the policies and procedures and the way in which they were being implemented by the party discriminated against Jewish members I think they're gonna find that I'm quite yeah. sure they're going to find that. I'd be amazed if they didn't. Um, so, but in terms of setting people's expectations, the HRC, you know, will be operating within its current remit and the terms of it, a reference of its own inquiry. And it will be imminent. And Keir has dealt with all of this so incredibly well so far. Um, I have huge hope that we can rebuild the party because he, like I, will never, ever, ever want to talk about it again. Like, I can't tell you how excited I will be. after after journalists want to talk to me about anything else other than my faith, it'll be really exciting. I used to, when I got to a point of going into Milbank when I was doing media rounds, and it'd be like, yeah, um, am I here for, if I hadn't paid attention properly, it's like, am I doing Jews or am I doing Brexit? Like, which one are you after me for? It was like, I got the government to commit to a billion pounds for a new um, um, uh, fast jet, fighter jet. No one ever asked me about that. I got yeah. I, I led the holiday hunger program, which has been so relevant this week, and got the government to do a national pilot. No, nah, no one was interested in that. <laughs> I actually had things I'm campaigning on. No, nah, you're right. Well, I,
1: feel, I mean, I've I sort of feel bad for asking you about it, but I suppose in a way you want people to know what really happened, and it's important that people know. Equally, you think well, I. Like, I don't want to be responsible if you're having another conversation about how awful the last five years have been. And, and, you know, it's almost
2: it, therapeutic though, Matt. I mean, in the nicest possible way. Oh, I hope therapy.
1: so. <laughs> I hope so. Oh,
2: it's, um, I read people trying to rewrite history as if Luciana just sort of disappeared for fun and she walked away from... Yeah, she's related to Manny Shinwell, for God's sake. She didn't just leave the Labour Party for fun. Um, she was hounded out. Um, so when you see people, you know, oh yeah, I really, I've dedicated my whole life to the Labour Party. I don't want us to lose elections. I didn't throw away the not 2019 election. I campaigned every week, week in, week out as a member of Parliament and have been door knocking since the election, either because I'm, you know, strange, or more <laughs> because I care about the Labour Party and I care about the country. None of us were throwing away elections we were just completely confused about the Labour Party that was existing around us, and where had our soul gone? Like, who were we?
1: Yeah, and it, it, um, sort of, it doesn't entirely work as a theory, because if you were, if you were a careerist and self-interested, you'd have, you'd have not said anything and made your re-election perhaps a bit easier.
2: I had to keep my mouth shut. Yeah, I, don't, I think we all know that that's quite unlikely that I was ever going to be keeping my mouth shut. But... Um, <laughs> But it was, and I hope, but I'm sure I would, on any if it had not been Jews, and if it had been black people, or if it had been Muslims or Hindus or Sikhs, I'd have been standing there too, just as, Streeting and John Mann and Ian Austin and countless others stood with me. I I hope I and I, given my involvement in racism campaigns before. And then it was like the bit that I found really offensive. It's like, well, you only the hierarchy of racism, you only care about Jews. It's so like, I literally ran Hope Not Hate. Like, Five in years. In a, I mean, I campaigned in. I, started, I did, went on my first campaign session with what was searched like Not Hope Not Hate in 2001. Are you kidding? Like, in my really, really. Anyway, that's sort of my personal rant but this because these people have no understanding of our history they like arrived politically yesterday um do you want to hear my favorite thing my favorite test to them when they push at me about the labor party yeah. you have uh, the best question to ask them is uh, um why do we have a rose as our logo because they don't know <laughs> and when i tell them it's because it was a jewish trade union official from america oh my god their heads explode Red and Roses, Rose Schneiderman, thank you
1: very much. Or oh, they say it was Peter Mandelson.
2: Yeah, it was Peter Mandelson. <laughs> hey, but why did he choose a rose? Yeah.
0: Wow, and why do all
1: these other socialist organisations <laughs> choose roses?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, man. So now let's, let's move on to more positive, to the future, yeah. uh, with, with Index on Censorship. that As we said, you're the new chief exec of. And what a time to be taking on that mantle, to be discussing things you know, about free speech And it's interesting, obviously, given the history of the organisation, that it's siding effectively with dissidents against repressive regimes and cultures. Obviously, we're living in a period at the moment where just the other weekend we saw the far right out in London just the other day in Glasgow and other places across the UK where, as a society, we're considering what the limits of free speech might be for the people that we disagree with, and not just people that we disagree with in the sense that you're left-wing and right-wing or whatever, but Really hateful, far right incitement um, to racial and religious hatred. I mean, as as the new chief exec of a, of a free speech organisation, where do you stand?
2: I think it's really. I mean, with politics has totally turned on its head. So, I mean, there's so many different parts to that. But if you think you've got the you've got the left saying ban everything and everything's hate speech and like PC brigade and you can't talk about it, right? Then on the right, you've got horrible, vile racists saying, it's my right to say whatever I want to say. And he's like, actually, you're both wrong. Like, you're genuinely both wrong. This is going to make me completely unpopular with everybody. <laughs> but the far right have not got the right... You've, you've absolutely got the right to hate, but you have not got the right to beat up coppers. You have not got the right to um, to... Um, a punch a journalist in in the face as Gabriel Prohhornd as it happened to him from Sunday Times last week. Like you haven't got right to do these things. And on the other side, when did the far left stop wanting to have a debate? When did we stop wanting to educate? When did you? When did that happen? I mean, the BNP is a really good example of this. Hope not hate. Time after time has beaten the institutions of the far right, whether it was the National Front, Combat Eighteen. Um, the BMP, the EDL, we beat the institutions, but the politics remain Mm. because you've got to fight the politics too. We beat the institutions, but you've got to fight the politics. So you have to have debate and you've got to have, but what we've got to do is agree where the lines for that debate are in the 21st century and how you're going to bring people together and how you're going to give them the tools to have that argument. And so you've got sort of that sort of where I think we need to be. But on... The other side, we've never seen attacks to, you know, in, in our lifetime. We've not seen attacks to journalists in the way that we're seeing them right now.
0: Yeah.
2: In the States, we're talking uh, uh, since, the, um, since George Floyd was murdered, we've seen um, over 60 journalists arrested. We've seen a, like, arrested in America for being journalists. We've seen, we're not talking about Egypt. We're not talking about Malaysia. We're not talking about Bahrain. We're talking about the States. You know this is just bizarre we've seen um 80 and um, over 80 uh, journalists attacked in the states this doesn't make sense in the 21st century and when you look at how populist politicians of all kinds are attacking journalists as a way of attacking the establishment to build their own profile including our own government so you know and how that's meant for you know, Emily Maitlis not going on Newsnight and you know, restrictions, um, how many questions people are getting to ask in the middle of a global pandemic, there is something wrong also with our journalism and the way politics is interacting with journalism. So, protecting journalistic freedoms is really important, and it's important that we protected them in the UK and in Europe and in the States because the rest of the world looks to us for what is acceptable and what isn't. And if we're saying current events are acceptable, then oh, God only knows what happens to the rest of the world. Like, they'll just go, well, look, they don't care about them anymore. And, you know, you look at how and how brave some people are being in response to it, what's happening in Hong Kong and how brave they're being. Being, you know, you've got, you know, in the Philippines, people being prepared to speak out. Bahrain, if you're, can you imagine being an LGBT activist in an in a place where you could get killed state sanctioned killing for being gay and you're writing a blog about it that is a brave brave thing to do and it's those people that I want to make sure that um, I want to make help make them household names in the UK because that gives them a level of protection at home and I want people to understand their stories and I want to give them a bit of hope so they know that we care about
0: them it's that time of the year
1: this is the danger with the free speech debate is that inevitably you go, well, what about racism then? And what about bigotry? Because that's where at the moment, the conversation in certain elements of society seems to be is, well, what do we allow ourselves to tolerate? So, I mean, Stoke is a really good example, partly because we both have a significant personal experience there. But when I was working there, when, when we first met the BNP had nine seats on the council.
2: Yeah.
1: Now this is way before Brexit and all this. And the way that Labour defeated the BNP was to, as you say, actually take them on, and no platforming hadn't worked. No. So they stopped no platforming them. And the moment, and what was really, I thought, fascinating about the way that um, those who really put in the legwork against driving the BNP out of Stoke was, it was treating them as if they were another party and just holding them to account that that evaporated their support, highlighting the fact they didn't even go to council meetings or, or their voting record campaigning against the BNP as if they were the Lib Dems or the Tories seemed to be actually the best way of defeating them rather than calling them racist because once people were voting for them they were kind of the people that were voting for them in enough number sadly were, were comfortable with the fact that they were prejudiced
2: if you're going to run a campaign and that's that was the pro- that was always the problem with truth this why hope not hate was proved to be so successful because if you were going to run a campaign Um, which traditional anti-fascists did, that said that everyone that voted for the BNP was a racist, then you have just called a million people racists that you need to win over to your side so they don't vote for them anymore. That is not, by by attacking someone, that is not the way to do good politics. So exposing for the fact that they weren't delivering for you, that they were incompetent, that they were so caught up in their own personal prejudice that they were forgetting about their constituents that's the way that you beat the BMP, And it wasn't by, I mean, there is a big conversation to be had about de-platforming and how it works and what it means and where, where are the lines for complete. There are certain people who I do not, you know, who are so vile, you know that they're going to break the law when they open their mouths. I wouldn't want to debate them because if I did, that gives them credibility like immediately. And they are not on the same level as me. They have the right to say those things but not the right to the audience that someone like me or you would give them. So there is a different level for that conversation. But beating them, exposing them, making it clear that they care more about whether you've got a white or a black neighbour than they do about what food's coming into your house and whether you've got a house and what's happening to you. Those things are much, much more important, much more powerful. And for you and me, a bread and butter.
1: So in your new role then, I mean, the, the, the free speech obviously is, is always a, a, a fraught discussion, always relevant, uh, applies itself differently according to, to each generation and to the times in which, it, in which we exist. So, I mean, do you have a plan for, for the next few years? I mean, do, do you have sort of priorities? Are there certain things that you think I definitely want to do this, this and this?
2: So I um so I do and I don't because I think yeah as we've seen even this year in the middle of the pandemic who would have thought that we would be living through one of the most tumultuous U.S. elections in our history have a lever, have protests on the street every day I um I went to I went to secondary school in Bristol and you know the Corstorphine statue coming down is a brilliant thing. But who just thought what that was and how Like in the middle of all of this. So the world moves so quickly that it's difficult, especially at the moment. But there are big questions which were, were exactly the same 50 years ago as they are today. So I was reading the opening um, op-ed for the launch of Index. And they talked about how you deal with the challenge of technology. Now, they meant television. Right? Yeah. <laughs> More channels, whereas obviously we mean social media platforms. But how free speech has to engage with that, how you provide a platform that is effective, how you rate platforms also, you know, you have intellectual platforms, you have platforms for everybody. What does all of this mean? What does it look like? How you can deal with, you know, where does for journalists censor where does editing become censorship? There are big conversations, and what I want to be able to do is facilitate the conversation. I don't, I am not the arbiter of what free speech should look like. I, but I want to build a conversation that we can have together about where those lines are. It's not for me to do, it's for everyone to do. Um, and I think that then if you're doing that, then, and at the same time you're providing skills, and I hope that this is where I would be slightly different, but you're providing the skills and the tools to the people who have felt bullied out of debate, that this is how you can engage. This is the skills that you have. These are the tools available to you and give them the confidence to do it. Then you can actually change the nature of public debate. And public debate's become so like discourse has become so polarized and so aggressive that there's definitely a way we can engage with this that is different. And I want to help try and facilitate that. I want to use this as an opportunity to have a conversation about what type of society we're going to live in. But
1: the timing couldn't be better. And that would have been true even before this pandemic. It's even more true now. It's become, as you say, with, with with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um Obviously, which has been around for a few years, but really capturing the public imagination in a way, perhaps yeah. it hadn't before, sadly as the result of an atrocity, but just that, that, that public awareness now, the fact that it is, people are rightly seeing it as more of a priority, it's jolted a new generation of people into realising that racial equality feels like a very long way off, sadly. Um, you're, you've got such an opportunity and such a platform
2: yeah.
1: to do so much good.
2: I think there's, I hope so. And I really, I mean, I think there's a huge amount of goodwill towards wanting to have this conversation. And because no one wants this level of hostility and anger, I mean, trolling online is unnecessary. Bullying. And you know, this is, is like the schoolyard, but for the rest of your life, if we allow this to continue, whereas none of it's constructive. We're increasingly creating echo chambers so that we only hear our own opinions and they're reinforced by, you know, if someone read my Twitter page and read your Twitter page, they don't have to go anywhere else because, you yeah, they would agree with us. And Very true. Ready. Very true. But you know, I don't, I actively don't search out opinions that I disagree with, you know, because why would you on social media? So dialogue has gone. Constructive criticism has gone and, some of that's been reflected in the chamber of the House of Commons too, like proper, constructive, cross-partisan, non-partisan, cross-party activity. There's got, we've got to be thinking about the tone that we're using, how we engage and what we engage on while desperately protecting free speech. I mean, the civil rights movement came to being because they had the rights under free speech and they made sure they used them feminism and the changes to feminism, what we're seeing with the Black Lives Matter protests, it's all because we've got the right to do those things. So protecting them has never, become more, has never been more important. But finding our way through in a way that is encouraging debate rather than encouraging hate, I think that's where we need to be.
1: And the advantage you've got is, in a way, political parties are kind of tainted and, you know, what you need are kind of honest arbiters and kind of... People that feel like they don't have the baggage that people can trust because w- when it's become polarized, we've become polarized for and against brands, whether it's the Spectator or the New Statesman or Labour or the Tories, leave or remain, yes or no. People are, are really wary of things happening under those umbrellas. Whereas if you can create the space for that and be the people who facilitate it, then all sides can engage w- with a level of trust and perhaps that wariness they don't have of their opponents.
2: Bring together leave and remain, and this is how the dialogue should be and actually how the debate should be. Bring together the people who are, you know. Some of the most interesting debates are those are always of people who have strong opinions, because otherwise what's the point in debate? Yeah. But making sure that you've you've found the right people who are the right spokesperson. I really want to hear. I mean, it's why Marcus Rushford's intervention this week was so amazing, because he wasn't a traditional um, political person, he spoke with a genuine, true voice about an issue that he was passionate about, and he was brave enough to do it because of the platform that he has, and he's been supported in doing it. I want to make sure that there are more of him yes, that can yes. embrace, and I want to find them and help give them their sub- and support them to do it. I want to create a generation where they value free speech, and we have a free speech ambassadors. That, that they do it as black activists, they do it as Jewish activists, they do it as um, feminists, they do it you know, for whichever campaign they are passionate about, but they also embrace the fact that it's them as um, free speech activists too.
1: There is also the issue that you raised there of just the, the tone, particularly on social media, of bullying, really. Um, it's interesting with social media that I, th- I think there'll be a huge... Reaction against the way social media companies have just effectively allowed people to just be openly bullied. And I don't think it's about whether people have said necessarily anything racist or sexist. I think there is just a tone on there that is vile, whoever you are. Um, And yet, you know, I occasionally report accounts to Twitter. Sometimes those uh, accounts then get suspended or whatever when they've been really bad. Occasionally, someone's just been really horrible, and you think that should still be unacceptable. That should not be okay that you can just come on here and abuse me anonymously, because that has an effect on so many people seeing that stuff. But that's okay. They said, "Well, that doesn't violate our rules." Now, the way you would stand on that in terms of free speech,
2: or it's a really big issue because it's in the state. It's, It's the legal statute that the companies were created under in America, which gives them the right as um, they're not publishers well, yeah. they're not publishers they, say they provide a platform and yeah. they've got to they're not responsible for their content which means they are protected from being sued and yeah obviously trump has been threatening that and i'm not sure given that, you know twitter at its best because i think facebook's slightly different because it's more engaging yeah. but twitter at its best at a time of global crisis or when um, when we see a terror attack, finding if people are being um, safe, or if you are, if you do live under a oppressive regime, being able to sneak out stuff that's going on, we saw that during um, the Spring Revolutions. So, yeah, you. There are. It, at its best, it is an incredible tool, and you've got to take its best with its worst. But there is a role to be had here about online citizenship and your responsibilities. Both, you know, face to face and online, people would never, ever, ever say half of what they say on Twitter to someone because they, you know, they just wouldn't. Because we're British and we're not that rude um, <laughs> until we're hiding behind a computer. Um, and there, so there is a conversation. But there, I mean, I'm very clear, and I was always as a politician. There are rights and responsibilities. You know, we have a right to free speech, but we have a responsibility to protect it. We have a right to use Twitter, but we have a responsibility to everybody else that is using it too. And that shouldn't limit your free speech. It's just making you think about what you're doing.
1: You're still in Stoke. Um, I mean, it was inc- even with the context of what happened at the last election, it was incredible that Labour lost the seats they did in Stoke-on-Trent. Heartbreaking. Do you feel hopeful that uh, the next time things will be different?
2: It's really weird because I can't door knock. Like in a... Not a so I instinctively feel more hopeful, but I genuinely would door lock every weekend. So I don't, yeah, I know my neighbour, but then she voted for me last time. So, I mean, it's a little bit weird that you're cut off from normal conversation. Um, I think my constituents, some of my constituents are really confused that they woke up with three Tory MPs and a Tory council. Um, having said that, if you've been paying attention to state politics and the rest of the world outside you and me wouldn't have,
0: mm. um,
2: our local government results for like the last 30 years have been interesting because of the BNP and that we, the coalitions and things that we went into. We lost control of Stoke Council in 2015, even when we held all three seats, which shouldn't have happened. We lost Stoke-on-Trent South in 2017 um, and I held on, but my majority was halved. We won the by-election, which sort of gave us hope against UKIP, but that's because you know, people like me are very comfortable campaigning against extremists than we are, you know. Yeah. Um, but my vote was down 6,500. 6,500 of my voters just didn't vote, full stop, and I lost by 6,200. So it's not like there were Tory votes. So I honestly don't know, and it's a question I have. I can't tell you how unpopular Jeremy Corbyn was here. We're a squaddy recruitment area. Everybody knows someone that served in Northern Ireland. They are proud and patriotic. I have only ever been asked about the deterrent in a way that is, well, of course we should have it, like in a, we'd be stupid to give something like that up. This is a proud, small sea conservative traditional area. They were very confused. And what was worse, they were really angry at us that, they'd let, that we'd let their party turn into this, and they viewed it as their party. Yeah. And they would raise momentum as a brand with me on the doorstep. Like it wasn't, like they, militant to momentum. These are well-informed people. They were like, "You have been hijacked yet again. What have? How have you let this happen?" And so they knew my politics. They knew my challenges with Corbyn. They knew much more about me having me being Jewish than they ever thought they were going to know. Um, and they, I can't tell you how wonderful they were about all of that. Like, every time it was front page story about me getting another death threat, this is such a stokey thing. But I would get a piece of spode pottery because they did a Judaica range, and someone would send me something with a Star of David on. There's a, we're stokey, like, I get, I get to my office and there would be a bunch of hours outside my office. It was such a stokey thing, right? Um, a, how could these people be so horrible to you? The, one of the funniest was I was at, uh, I, I was in Kidsgrave at uh, the summer fair and it was like one of the spikes of the misery and someone went oh let me get you a sandwich and then went to give me a bacon sandwich and it was about (laughs) anti-semitism oh bless like okay never mind um but so they were amazing and i can't tell you how yeah it was an honor and a privilege to serve my constituents it was the best most brilliant thing in the world um And the questions I've been having with them since the election is, would you vote for me again? Like in a, you didn't vote or you voted Tory for the first time in your life. Can you come back to me or have I lost you forever? They want to come back, but they're not sold. So there is still a journey to go on. Um, And we need to give them something to vote for, you know, Whatever anyone thinks of, if you take out Brexit, which you can't, I represented the third most Labour League seat in the country. If you take away Jeremy Corbyn, we were still left and how much they hated him as an individual, like it was very personal. But if you even look at our manifesto in 2017 and 2019, it was virtue signalling to poor people. So, um, yeah, we'll get rid of the bedroom tax, um, but we're going to nationalise the railway. Now, I've got no problem with nationalising the railway at all. But I'd like a bus service that works. And my constituents didn't have a bus. And we didn't talk about buses. Like, not in <laughs> politics is people.
0: Yeah.
2: And that didn't make any sense. Like, we talk about um, tuition fees. Brilliant. I'm the last year out that didn't have to pay tuition fees. For that, I am very grateful. I'm the first one in my family that went to uni. But 22% of my constituents go to university. I needed them to talk about putting more money into FE because that's where my constituents were going to go. I needed to talk to the, I needed to be able to talk about level four apprenticeships and what that meant. I needed them to talk about in the round about futures. I needed them to talk about houses that were genuine social houses and how we were going to build them so people trusted us to build them. I didn't need virtue signalling about food banks. I needed real policies for them. And I think that's the so we had a very class, a very middle class response to poor people, which was just bloody patronising and written by people who had been nowhere near a council estate. I mean, I lived in a council flat. they been nowhere near. I mean, I'm not Stokey, but I have I had the same upbringing as most of my constituents. I it was written by people who had who thought they knew about working class people from what they'd read. I think at points by in Charles Dickens books, like. This is not a real version of my constituents'
1: lives. And and what makes Stoke so interesting is it's a city where well, it's a collection of six towns that um that are in a sort of in a line rather than a hub and spoke, and that has that has effects for the internal politics of Stoke. Those six towns uh-huh. are very distinctive. Also plus, so plus kids grove,
2: because I had kids grow, so plus kids grow. Plus kids grow. You know,
1: the <laughs> internal politics of Stoke are fascinating. But also. A former heavy skilled industry area. It still has some potteries, but that industry of pits and pots is gone. It's it's kind of looks to Manchester and looks to Birmingham and realizes that it's not those places and isn't as big and doesn't have the infrastructure that those places have. It for me really embodies when people talk about Brexit or any of these underlying reasons of the of the disconnection between the Labour Party, even back in the period that we were that we first met and were involved, even then you could feel that if we weren't careful Labour was just they were just slightly moving away from each other. It wasn't a major problem at that point, but you could feel a, a slight disconnection. I mean, I remember knocking on doors and, you know, you'd say to people all the stuff about tax credits, NHS, whatever. And uh, the people I always found hardest to kind of convince to be Labour were single white men.
2: Yeah.
1: And they go, we're well, just talking about stuff for families. What have you done for me? You go, well, your streets are safer. He's like, mate, I don't need the police around there. You go, what about the NHS? You like, I don't use it. You're like... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just in general, you know, the economy's good and that, that's, just, that's just a bit vague for people, however true it is. Yeah. And you could feel even then, you just thought, oh, man, if we're not careful, you could feel they those were. people. They were ready to leave, a lot of them.
2: They were, and we had, you know, the end of our heavy industry. It wasn't like Birmingham because as Birmingham lost one industry, it's a second city, there was another industry for people to move into jobs. I mean, we now make, or we did before, I mean, please God, everyone survives the um, the pandemic. But up until December, we made as many pots now as we did 30 years ago. But we did it with a fraction of the number of people because of automation. And, you know, I won't use anything other than a stoky mug. But... That does, But most people don't realise and they'll go into Tesco's and they'll buy something made in China. And there isn't the buy British sentiment that goes alongside it. And people are proud of what they're making. And so we lost the trade union connection. We lost the workplace connection. And we didn't know how we were going to rebuild it. And we didn't. And it's um, what, one of the most exciting things that I did as an MP, one of the things that I was lovely for me, one of my wards, which is... Um, Brady and Chelheath. Chelheath is a really, really poor area. It's a big council estate. It was an area that struggled economically. And voter t- vote turnout there was about 25% during a general election. And it wasn't a 2015 election.
1: Oh, my but
2: holiday hunger was one of my things. And I, um, I went to meet, we were doing a Save Our um, Sure Start campaign. And I met with the mums who were running the Shore Star and they went, first time ever as an MP, I was like 18 months in, and they went, well, what can we do to help you? And I said, well, let me tell you about something I'm actually really interested in and what happens to kids who qualify for free school meals during the summer holidays. And they went, oh my God. And these are women who would be right on the edge themselves. They went, you're absolutely right. And it cost me a fortune and it nearly seized me over the edge. And that was sort of December. They did fundraising for half term in February. They then, um, and they, um, they went to the head who completely breached the rules and gave them the 20 names of the families on the wink wink that they needed to, that needed some help over half term and food parcels were arranged for those 20 families. That then became a holiday club that summer, which then led to a citywide, yeah, we've got a citywide run by Port Vale and Carol Shanahan at the Hub Foundation. We've now got this amazing holiday hunger scheme. It was this group of women who decided, without realising they were community leaders, they were, and voter turnout on their con- in um, their ward went up, like Brilliant. went up. And it and it wasn't one wasn't meant to lead to the other. It just did because then they were suddenly interested in their wider community and what it meant and who'd helped them and why was that relevant and then and they made their um, parents vote who would never voted and their husbands wow. and they took them all with them to vote on polling day and it was just. And so 2017 polling day was like, oh my God, they've all actually just gone and voted for me, having never voted in their lives before. That was really exciting.
1: something Someone needs to make a film out of something like that. It's like a it's sort of Richard Curtis film. It's a, proper, it's, it's a real yeah. feel good.
2: But it's a proper working class story because that's actually what has always happened in working class communities, like real communities. Oh, man. Um, you'll appreciate it, it's Chel Heath, and yeah, it was amazing. They're, they're brilliant women
1: and so now obviously in 2019 uh didn't get the result that you'd have liked just thinking about those things we've just talked about do you think Keir Starmer can get those people
2: back they really want um so i think he can i think it is like a huge huge mountain to climb and anyone that thinks it isn't is kidding themselves um we are you know the tories because this the, the bit that we need to add on not just to the horrible statistics we now face is that there's now a tory mp in every red wall seat that never had one before which means an infrastructure which means the tory spending money in places that they've never spent money before means they've got ongoing campaigns and we've just lost all of our infrastructure so you know not just the top line stuff actually day to day in the community becomes just harder um but they my constituents didn't want to vote for boris they, you know, they. This he was the lesser of two evils in their world. They were not in love with this man. I doubt he's done very much to redeem himself since. Given he, how, uh, I mean, I can't tell you the anger that was clear anger about Cummings on the streets around here. Given the sacrifices people were yes. making, um, and it isn't that. I don't think people would probably raise Cummings now, but what they will raise is a lack of trust with the government because they don't really trust them now and a competence issue. And those things will play with the Tories now going forward. Keir's made an amazing start. The Tory failures over the last couple of months had given Keir an opportunity to be heard, which there was no guarantee for a brand new leader in the middle of a pandemic he was going to get that opportunity. Um, and he's, he looks like what they want a prime minister to look like. I mean, that is the brilliant part of this. Keir looks like he could Kier looks like he should be sitting in number ten. Um, and as proper, you know, from a I I would never go door knocking not looking like the MP because they expected me to look like the MP. They've only seen me in jeans since the election and I've been the park. Quite- I don't think they thought I owned a pair of trainers because they would never have seen me look like that. <laughs> now, like they expect MPs to look like MPs, they expect. And that, I, I had Jeremy Corbyn's shoes raised with me, yeah. And and he's there, like, it, it became so personal, like because that, but that is not what they expected the leader of the Labour Party to look like.
1: Well, that's what, something I don't think Corbyn understands, and I don't think Boris understands it either. Is that working class people take real pride in their appearance when, it, particularly when it comes to serious things. And not showing that respect, whether it's a donkey jacket at the Cenotaph or scruffy hair when you're announcing deaths at the dispatch box, doesn't look like some sort of taste thing. Like, oh, I just prefer this. It looks like utter disrespect to the country. It looks like you can't be bothered to even comb your hair when you represent us. And then people extrapolate, well, what does that mean about all the other things you're not doing?
2: Well, it's patriotism as well. Mm. You are you represent the country, whether you, you know, and as an MP, whether you like it or not, you represent the country to them. You are their representative of our country, and they also know that you travel around the world and engage with other people it? as So, if that's what we're offering the world, Keir, even with his not being able to get a lockdown haircut like the rest of us, um, Keir still looks like a prime minister. He wears a suit well, and thank God. He's blessed with an amazing brain. So, you know, as a start off a 10, tick box, all right. Um, what happens after that we'll see. But he's you know, he's definitely um and he wants to listen and he wants to learn. And what was really good is that he came to Stoke between the referendum and last year's general election. He came four times maybe, because my constituency in um, exactly mirrored his in terms of the Brexit vote. So um he wanted to see, you know, he would keep coming back to torture about industry and what it meant and how we could get in a better place. The Labour Party couldn't hold together a massive Remain vote and a massive Brexit vote. It just wasn't possible.
1: What about next time, we've talked about what next time, you know, for Labour might mean in Stoke for Keir Starmer, would you stand again?
2: And there's a lot about what happens in the next few years. I've just started a new job, so I probably shouldn't say to my boss, yeah, I'm off, mate. sorry, <laughs> yeah. Trevor. Um, uh, look, you, well, I am passionate about the area in which I live. I am passionate about the Labour Party as I force for good. Um, it has been in every fibre of my being. Um, and there are things like this week with the free school meal stuff. I am... Um, that's my, my first question in the commons was genuinely on um, holiday hunger in 2015. And the idea that other people are talking about that is sort of a, it's brilliant. Other people are talking about it, but I did it for my constituents. And now, you know, there's a little bit of, Oh, they're not doing it as well as I do it, or they're not saying what I want them to say. I mean, it's really frustrating. Um, so I don't know, but the, I'd never have thought that from 2015 to 2019, I've had three general elections and I had Jeremy Corbyn and so I've no idea what's going to happen next and we don't know what the boundary changes are going to look like and they could be done in such a way that means we can't win back any of these seats for a long time either so who knows but um, I don't plan on being quiet either um, uh, locally and I definitely won't be quiet nationally.
1: Ruth good luck in your new role it's such an exciting thing to do and and we all are just really excited to see what you do with it and and you'll have huge amounts of support I'm sure. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. There you go, Ruth Smith. Uh, What a brilliant opportunity she's got to help us all improve the quality of our discourse now. As a planet, she's in such a great position to be able to improve the way we talk to each other, the way we try and understand each other, and, and to try and get people out of those trenches, which is so important, and whether it's black lives matter and the importance of people being able to speak out against oppression or whether it's also as having a conversation as a country about the far right here and how we deal with that and what the limits are on the things they should be able to say i just thought it was a great chat um also it's just still so awful to hear the account of jewish people under corbyn's leadership particularly jewish women and what they were put through it is just still as heartbreaking and as sickening as it was at the time and obviously it was only if you know we're talking a few months ago and it's all happened in the last few years but talking to Ruth about the security she needed about about the horrendous experience it's really it, it still still has the power to shock so that EHRC report when it comes out is a huge opportunity for the current labour leadership of course um but it's also an opportunity for the wider labour movement um, and the way that everyone reacts to it will be hugely symbolic and really important, not just for the Jewish community, but for the rest of the country. Um, we need to see if the Labour Party is, is prepared to change. So who knows when that comes out? It sounds like it's imminent. Um, but it was great to, to chat to Ruth about the limits of free speech, about the position she's in to be able to influence things for the better. Um, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, plenty of you have uh, Catherine Sarah has been in touch with some fantastic guest suggestions and, and do if there's anyone you want from around the world big or small because sometimes it's not that I forget about people but obviously um, well I guess I do you know you can't think about everyone all the time so you think oh I should have asked that person so it always helps and it's always lovely to know where people listen um, Ian got in touch um, Ian Spare he listens in the Swiss Alps which is very clamorous and Craig Bryce listening in Yarra Valley, just outside Melbourne. So from Switzerland to Australia and from me here in the UK, and we're all connected by this podcast, which is lovely. So always let me know where you listen um, and any suggestions, any feedback. Well, I've got so many emails about the David Lammy episode. People loved it. Um, I, he was absolutely superb and his book is brilliant tribes and I put a link to that in the previous show notes for this for these show notes uh, with Ruth Smith I've linked to um, to her new organisation so that you can click on there and see exactly what the uh, index on censorship and up to you can sign up to their mailing list and, and keep in touch so I hope you're well uh, I hope you're um, staying okay I know that um, all of you will be having rapidly rapidly um no radically different i need to eat radically different experiences of this um crisis and i know i've said this before so i don't want to repeat myself but i'm just when i say i hope you well, i really mean it but i know i don't i don't want it to sound flippant because i know for some people they're still going through a very difficult time um i've been shielding as some of you may know and um just been able to go out for a socially distanced walk first thing in the morning has, has been a huge benefit. So I hope some of you are able to safely enjoy those those incremental um, uh, relaxations of the of the limitations. So there we are. A very long-winded way of saying thanks for listening. Do leave an iTunes review. Email me and um, and just spread the word. And I'll see you soon. ta